0: and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. You have heard or you have said this statement probably at least once in your life. Actions speak louder than words, right? How many of you have had that said to you or have said that to somebody at some point in your life, right? Actions speak louder than words. What we're saying is, we, we hear what you're saying But we want to know that your walk matches your talk, right? I hear that you love me, but actions speak louder than words. Well, over the last several months, we've been looking at the words of Jesus, and we have seen that the words of Jesus... Referred to in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as the Sermon on the Mount. These words of Jesus have power and authority. But today we move into a section where we see the works of Jesus, the action of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So we know that his words are powerful, but the question that we'll answer today, does his actions back up his words? Does what he says, what he says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his Sermon on the Mount, does his actions match his talk? Does his walk match his talk? And so we are coming to a transition point in the text that we're finishing the first uh, Talk the first uh, speech, the first sermon that Jesus gives, and we're going to get five of these. But what he does, Mat- Matthew outlines for us, is each one of these sermons is then followed by actions, right? So you have the words, and then you'll have actions. You have words, and then you'll have actions. So we've just finished this first main section of the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're moving to the actions of Jesus. So in this transition. I want to take a minute and go back for just a second because it's always good for us to do this, to be reminded about the theme, to sort of zoom out a little bit so we can see the theme and the key verses as we continue our journey through the book of Matthew. So what is the theme of Matthew? Somebody tell me. Jesus is king. King. I appreciate you raising your hand. Jesus is king, right? Like that is the theme of the book of Matthew that Jesus is king. How do we know that? When well, Matthew chapter one and verse one, it begins this way, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. So when Matthew begins his writings, he talks about the fact that this book is going to be about Jesus. And then he uses this term Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ is not Jesus' first and last name. Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. So it's, it's, it's his, his, uh, his title or, or what, what he is here for. And that word Christ means anointed one or king. So right in the first verse, in the first sentence of the first chapter, the first sentence of the verse... Matthew lets us know what the book about is about. That this is about Jesus being the anointed king. Then he says, the son of David. Now remember, David was a king that everybody, he was the ultimate king in the Jewish person's mind. He was the best king that they ever had. And they knew that through David would come another king, one who was anointed, the Messiah, the Christ that would come. And so Jesus is the anointed one, the son of David. He's coming from the line of David. And so all of that, right in the first verse, He's showing us that Jesus is king. Then does anybody remember what the key verses are for the book of Matthew? Anybody remember the key verses? I won't make you quote it, but it's Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the key verses. So I want you to read them so that you know uh, what they are. So read this with me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so in these verses, you really have a summation of the book of Matthew. And we know that from the three alls that he chooses to write for us that Jesus said, all authority, all nations, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So all the teachings. This is a king talking about his kingdom because a king ultimately has all authority and can make... an disciples of all nations and were to follow all of his teachings because he is the king. So in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has shown us that he is king by his authority in his teaching. Because if you go to the end of Matthew chapter 7, In verse 29, it says, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So the crowd's observation of Jesus' teaching was that he taught with authority. So it makes sense why at the end Jesus will say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Because what they're finding out through the book of Matthew is that Jesus has all authority. And so they've listened to Jesus teach. And they're saying this guy's teachings are different than other religious people's teaching. You see, scribes, when they would teach, they would always refer to another rabbi's sayings to prove their teachings. So if they were talking, it'd be like, I'm saying this on the authority of Rabbi Bob, right? Like, that's how I have authorities, because this is what Bob said. And and then before Bob, this is what Pastor Joe said. And so this is what gives me authority to say what I am saying. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he gives the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't talk on the authority of anyone else, but on the authority of himself and his Father God, right? And so they're listening to him teach and he's not referring to other scribes and other rabbis. He's talking with authority, with power. And they're like, how can this be? He has such authority. And so they see the authority in Jesus's teaching. Now in Matthew 8 and 9, he's going to show not just through his words that he has all authority. Now in Matthew 8 and 9, he's gonna show through his works that he has all authority. So if I were to summarize for you these next two chapters that we're going to work through, Matthew 8 and 9, I would summarize them as Jesus has all authority. So as we work through this, it'll take us about a month here to work through this, four Sundays to get through these two chapters. As we go through it, we're doing it through the lens that Jesus has all authority. Authority over disease, authority over creation, authority over us, right? Jesus has all authority because Jesus is the king. So today I want you to stand with me and turn to Matthew chapter eight, and I'm gonna read verses one through 17 to you as we look at the first three miracles that Jesus does in Matthew chapter eight. To give you an outline of Matthew chapter eight, here it is, just so you can sort of see where we're going. Verses one through four, Jesus is going to heal a leper. Verses eight through, or, or verses five through thirteen, he heals the centurion's paralyzed servant. And then in verses fourteen through seventeen, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and others. So let's read this together. I'll read out loud. You follow quietly as I read. When he came down from the mountain, great. Cl- And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to, the one, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom of heaven will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed and the servant was healed at that very moment. Amen. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Father, thank you for the power of your word and not just the power of your word, but today as we get the opportunity to see the power of your works, I pray Lord that our hearts would be amazed by you. I pray that our attention would be turned to you today and that we would leave this place more captured and more enamored and more in love with you because of who you are and the fact that you have all authority. And so I pray today that you would do a great work in our midst, draw our hearts to you, transform us from the inside out in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the first miracle that we see that Jesus does comes in verses one through four. This is the first miracle in the book of Matthew. It says in verse one, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds follow him and behold, a leper came to him. Now, we have a tendency and just I think it's just the nature of reading God's word that we can go right over phrases or, or sentences or words and miss the weight of what is being said. And I, I think this word is one of those words that we can just quickly pass by but not realize what's going on in the culture and in the context. It says, a leper came to him. Now, we read that, not a big deal. But to the Jewish audience that Matthew was writing to, To read that a leper came to Jesus would have been shocking. They would have been sitting on their edge of their seats saying, what's going to happen with this leper coming to Jesus? Because lepers don't come to people. In fact, lepers are to stay away from people. Just to give you an overview of leprosy, let me walk through some quotes that I've taken from commentaries to sort of bring together our understanding of leprosy. Leprosy, at a very basic level, is a skin disease. So, if you study scripture in Old Testament, particularly... They, they could have called lepr- like having acne was leprosy, all right? So they, it was just a skin disease, but it had it could get to really bad, which we to refer to, the, to today as the Hansen disease, but it could get to that level. But they would consider leprosy to even be acne. It was any breakout basically on your skin. And it was one of the most feared diseases in Bible times. In fact, Jesus or or God dedicates two chapters in the book of Leviticus on how to deal with leprosy because it was such a contagious disease and that it was not good for the community. He dedicated two chapters to how you are to deal with leprosy. So here's how they would deal with it. In order to protect his chosen people, God gave strict and specific regulations to Moses regarding leprosy. A person suspected of having the disease was taken to a priest for examination. If he showed signs of having more than a superficial skin problem, he was isolated for seven days. If the symptoms became worse, the person was isolated seven more days. If at that time the rash had not spread further, the person was pronounced clean and was let go. They could go back to their family. However, if the rash had become worse, he would be pronounced unclean and could not go back to his family and would be isolated from his community. Leprosy was immediately evident from a person's hair turning white and his skin would become raw and If that person came to the priest, he was pronounced unclean immediately on the spot and was just put out of their camp or was put outside of the walls because they wanted nothing to do with leprosy because of how it could spread through the community. When a person was found to have a serious form of leprosy, his clothes were to be torn, his head would be uncovered. And his mouth would be covered because the disease could spread through airborne kind of stuff. So they made them cover their mouths and they would have to yell, unclean, unclean. So wherever they went so that others would steer clear of them, their clothes had to be ripped, their head had to be uncovered. They had to cover their mouth and yell, unclean, unclean. Lepers were legally ostracized and forbidden to live in community with their fellow Israelites. Among the 61 defilements of ancient Judaism, leprosy was the second in seriousness only to touching a dead body. The Talmud, which is a compilation of rabbis' teachings, forbade a Jew from coming closer than six feet to a leper. And if the wind was blowing, the limit was 150 feet. And if a person touched a leper, they were considered unclean immediately and were to be, go to the priest, be isolated for seven days to make sure that they didn't have it. This is how serious they took leprosy. In a book called Unclean, Unclean, he describes for us the horror of the person who would get leprosy. Not that they just had to do these things, but what would happen to their body. When the disease would come on them, they would begin to have pain in certain areas of their body. And that pain would follow by numbness. And then the skin in such spots would lose its original color. And then it would get to be thick and glossy and scaly. As the sickness progress, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begin to bunch with deep furrows between the swelling so that the face of the afflicted individual and you can google this and go look at it it, it looks like the bark of a tree like that 's old tree, and you see that, and there 's deep furrows that 's what their face. And their hands uh, would begin to look like. Their fingers would drop off or be absorbed. Their toes were affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes would drop out. You could even smell them for the leper would emit a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacked the larynx, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality and his throat becomes hoarse and you can now not only see and smell the leper, but you can hear his raspy voice as he yells, unclean, unclean. Although... Advanced leprosy was generally not painful because they couldn't feel because of the nerve damage. The disfiguring and the debilitating nature of it caused them to be repulsive in their society. Rabbis would say this, When you see a leper, throw stones at them so they don't come near to you. They would say... I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leopard had walked. That's how ostracized they were from society. So when we read verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him. Do you feel the emotion? This leper could have not been touched for 10 years. You didn't come near to a leper. So can you imagine in this moment, his disciples must be like, what in the world is going on? People around him are shocked by the fact that the leper is even approaching Jesus. And the Bible says the leper comes to him And I love the humility and the reverence of the leper. He comes to him and he kneels before him. The leper understood who Jesus was. And so he comes with reverence to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Lord, if you will make me clean. I love the leper's request because The leper knew that Jesus was able to heal him. The issue in the leper's mind was not whether he had the power or the authority to heal him. The issue in the leper's mind was was Jesus willing to heal him. See, see, look at it. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He, He knew that the leper could make, he knew that Jesus could make him clean. It was just a matter of if the Lord was willing. Let me take a side road here for just a minute with you and talk about the distinction that we must make in our minds between the power of God, the power of Jesus, and the will of Jesus. See, the power of Jesus is found in what the leper says. He understood that Jesus could heal him, but he also understood that there was a will, that there was a plan. For his life. We know that Jesus has the power to do whatever he pleases. So if it's the Lord's will to heal someone, he has the power to do that. But we also understand that the Lord has a will. He has a plan for this life of ours that we are living. Here's a way for us to think about it. Isaiah 55 Verses 8 and 9 says this of the Lord. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are, are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We understand that God has the power to heal whoever he wants to heal. But we also understand that he has a will and a plan and we have to trust his will and plan. So in this story, a spoiler alert, the Lord's going to heal the leper, right? So his will, he had the power to do it and his will was to heal the leper. But we find other instances in scripture where we know that the Lord has the power to heal, but he chooses not to heal. One instance of this is in the life of Paul. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He goes to the Lord three times, the Bible says, and asks him, like, remove this thorn from my side, right? Remove this thorn from my side. Remove this thorn from my side. And finally, the Lord comes back to Paul and he says to him in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul understood that God had the power to heal him. And even though he chose not to heal him and allowed him to live in the weakness of suffering, that God was going to use that suffering for his glory. When it comes to healing, we have to know that God is able to heal. But we also have to know that he knows when to heal. As I've walked with people in our church, through cancer, through disease, through suffering, one of the things that I'm listening for when I'm walking with them is that they make a statement, and I've heard this statement many times from those in our church. I know the Lord can heal me, whether it's here or when I get to heaven but I'm going to be healed. That's understanding the power of God and the will of God. In the spring of 2000, James Boyce, a well-known pastor from the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, was diagnosed with cancer. And so as he was diagnosed with cancer, he stood before his church and asked them to pray for him in this way. He said, should you pray for a miracle? Well, You're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition, a miracle has to be an unusual thing. Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet That's where God is most glorified. God is in charge. When it comes to things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God is not only the one who is in charge. Listen, God is also good. And everything he does is good. When the leper comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. He understood the power of God, but he was also submitting himself to the will of God. And listen, I know that's easier said than done, right? If you've been diagnosed with cancer, or you've experienced the death of a loved one, you know that you still feel the sting of death, right? Your heart still grieves for the suffering that goes on, but you also trust the will of God and that he sees at a level that we don't see yet that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we trust God's power. We believe in his authority and we trust his will. So let's continue here. The, The leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And verse three says, this is an incredible statement that Jesus, Matthew makes that Jesus is about to do. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Do you touch lepers? What do you do to lepers? Throw rocks at them. You get six feet from them. If the wind's blowing, you get 150 feet from them, right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus touches them. And Jesus does something that You didn't do. You didn't touch a leper because if you touched a leper, you became unclean. And then you'd have to go to the priest and you'd have to be in isolation. Make sure you didn't have leprosy, right? You were ostracized at that moment. And yet Jesus reaches out and touches the leper and says, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. What was Jesus doing? What was he giving us a glimpse of? Jesus was giving us a glimpse of the cross of Jesus Christ. That in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 21, he says, For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus will identify with our uncleanness, taking the shame and filth of our sin upon himself in order to make us clean. Amen. Amen. And so on the cross of Jesus Christ, you see, him reaching out to touch us who were unclean so that we could become clean. This is good news. And Jesus said to the leper, See that you say nothing to anyone. Now, that's odd, right? Like, come on, this is social media worthy. This is trending worthy. Let's get some hashtags going. You know what I'm saying? Let's get out the reels. Let's get this guy on camera. I mean, I know it didn't start that way, but let's make it this, you know, like, let's get the word out. Why does Jesus say, I don't want you to tell anyone. And by the way, you go read other gospels. The man didn't listen to Jesus. He goes and tells everybody. And so Jesus has to go into hiding because his fame is spreading. So why did Jesus not want to draw a crowd? Isn't that why he came? So that he could heal lepers and he could heal paralyzed centurion servants so that he could heal women, that he could heal those who would come to him with diseases, that he could cast out demons. Isn't that why he came? Why is he saying, don't go tell anyone? Because Jesus knew the mission for which he had come. And yes, he was going to heal because he wants to show us that he has authority over everything. But in doing that, he's pointing us to a greater reality that he has come to heal our brokenness before our father in heaven. And so his mission was singular. His mission was the cross of Jesus Christ. That was his mission. And anything that would distract from that, he didn't want to have a part of it. And so he healed him and said, don't tell anyone. Because I haven't come just to heal people of leprosy. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. And we'll see this later on in the story of Jesus. Because the Bible said when he begins to say, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, people are going to split. So you're, you're not here just to heal us from leprosy? No. I'm here to heal something greater than that. So Jesus says, don't tell anybody. But then he says, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Here's what's neat about what Jesus is doing here. If you study Leviticus 13 and 14. And I love that our student ministry is going through the book of Leviticus. Tim, our student director, is leading our students through this and talking through these things because there's huge implications for the New Testament. But in this, if you go read Leviticus 13 and 14, what you find is there was a clause in there for someone who would get healed of leprosy. And so what Jesus is doing is he's submitting himself to the word of God. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, his view of scripture? He has a high view of the word of God. And so in this moment, Jesus is submitting to scripture and saying, we're going to do what the Bible says. The Bible says, if you're healed, you go show yourself to the priest. And so he's following scripture. Again, he's adding value to the word of God by saying, go show yourself to the priest. And this is the first account of God healing anyone of Leprosy. So, this clause in Leviticus 14 was here for this moment when Jesus would heal the man of leprosy. So, Jesus heals and shows his authority over leprosy. We got about five minutes for the next how many ever verses. Let's go. So, verses 5 through 13, we see the second healing. When he entered Capernaum, A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Verse seven would have been shocking to the audience. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So as the uncleanness of touching a leper, you couldn't do that unless you would become unclean. So centurion, Gentile, servant, Gentile, Jesus says, I will come to your house and and heal him would have been making Jesus unclean again. Because for a Jew to go into a Gentile's house would make them unclean. So again, Jesus is blowing their minds over and over again by his actions, by his works. Like, you don't do this. You don't touch a leper and you don't go to a Gentile's house. And yet Jesus is going, willing to go. He says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too, listen, this is where we get all authority. For I too am under authority. Here's the faith of this man. The faith of this man is that he understood Jesus' authority. And so like he was a man under authority... And then he had people under him that he could tell what to do and they would go do it. So he understood Jesus had all authority. And whatever his father told him to do, he could do. And the Bible says that when Jesus sees the man's faith in verse 10, when he heard this, he marveled. Now think about that statement. The one who spoke the universe into existence marvels at this man's faith. That's incredible. What faith that this man must have had. And he was trusting in the authority of Jesus. So he says, Jesus, you don't even got to leave from right where you are. I know that you have the authority just to speak the word and my servant will be healed. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse one that describes faith in this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You can heal my servant for the, and the conviction of things not seen. I don't even have to have you come and touch him because I know that you have the power to heal him. Faith is not blind or a leap in the dark. Faith is a confidence that God will do what he says he will do. That he has all. Authority. And if he speaks it, it will be done. So when the Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, I'm confident in the authority of God's word. That if you have called on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. He has All authority. And he will execute that authority. Let me ask you this question. One day the Bible says that we all will stand before God and give an account of our life. And when we stand before God, not if, there's a 100% chance that every person under the sound of my voice will one day step into the last box on their calendar There's a 100% chance of that. And when you do that and you stand before your Father in heaven, when you stand before God and he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What will be your answer to that question? What will you say to him when he says... Why should I let you into heaven? Your answer to this question is the most important answer to any question in all of your life for all eternity. There's not another question that is more important than this question. And here's what I would encourage you to consider if you answer on the authority of anything besides Jesus, you're in danger. But I prayed a prayer when I was like six years old. I was baptized. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I pray. I do good deeds. If any of it is on your authority and what you bring to the table, you fall short of the glory of God. But if I stand before the Father and he says, why should I let you into heaven? And I say, Because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He was buried and he rose again. And it's on Jesus' authority that I'm coming into heaven, not my own. Then he will say, welcome thou good and faithful servant. Do you believe that today? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you confident in the authority that Jesus has? That's what made this centurion's faith so attractable to Jesus was because his faith was in the authority that Jesus had. That it was all about him. He's like, you ain't got to come to my house. Just let's do it right now. That's the kind of faith that he had. He goes on. Jesus heard, he marveled. Verse 10 through 12. Jesus, I would say, basically calls out the religious people there. When he talks about hell and separation from him, torment, gnashing of teeth, he's saying, Again, key verse, all nations, people from all over, right? East, west are gonna come to the marriage supper of the lamb and have dinner with Jesus. But some of you who think that you're fathers of of Abraham or or you're the sons of, of the kingdom, you're the sons of Abraham, that because of your heritage, you're gonna get in. No, it's by faith and faith alone that you're gonna get into heaven. And he's reminding them of that. And then he looks at the man, And he says, go and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The third healing. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand. And I love this. The fever left her. She rose and began to serve him. Again, we read this. No big thing. Jesus heals Mary's mother-in-law or Peter's mother-in-law, not Mary's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law. What's the big deal with that? Here's how a Jewish man would start every day. He would pray this prayer. Lord, I thank God that I am not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That's how they viewed women in this culture. And so you can imagine the audience as Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law's hand and heals her. Again, an outcast in social circles, Because she was a woman. And listen, I I know we got things going on in our culture, but Jesus added value to women. If you study scripture, you can't can't deny that. That in a culture that looked down on women and saw women as second-class citizens, Jesus raises their value. You want to know how he raises their value? Right here. He heals a woman. That's raising the value and saying they're valuable to me. They may be, quote unquote, an outcast in this society, but they have value in my eyes and they're worth using my authority to heal. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and she gets up and serves him. And that evening, probably after Sabbath, they brought him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. then why did he do all this? Why these... Miracles Why these healings of the outcast of society, a, a, a leper? Why the healing of an outcast of, of religious circles, a, a Gentile? Why the healing of an outcast of, in, in culture, of, of a woman? Why all these healings? Verse 17 is your answer. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Jesus' life was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which was the prophet Isaiah describing a coming king who would be known as a suffering servant. So he says Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy that Isaiah came up taking our sick illnesses and bearing our diseases. Here's the reality, church. Sickness is in the world is a result of sin. Okay, we got, we, got to under, we got to have a good theology of this and sickness in the world is a result of sin. So you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. There was no sickness. There, there was no suffering. Then when sin entered the, entered the world, it affected every area of our lives. Everything about our lives is affected by sin. So the root problem in the world is not cancer. The root problem in the world is not viruses. The root problem in the world is sin and sin affects every area of our lives. So when Matthew says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, he's pointing us to not this physical healing. He's pointing us to a a deeper healing. He's pointing us to Jesus' death on the cross that would reverse the curse of sin. That Jesus paid the price for our sins. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases so that we could be freed from sin's penalty. And then verse 17, he's saying, this is why I'm healing the leper. This is why I'm healing the servant. This is why I'm healing the, the woman. Why? Because this is why I have come I have come for all nations, everyone. And I have come to bring healing to the greatest problem, the greatest area that you are broken in, and that is your heart and that is sin. And I have come to bring healing. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 11, verses 25 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What great hope we have as Christians. That Jesus has healed our greatest problem. Jesus has fixed it. He's reversed the curse of sin. Now we still feel the effects of sin in the world that we live in, right? But we've been taken away from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' death on the cross. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear disease. We don't have to fear anything that comes in our lives because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so today we get to remember the cross of Christ through communion. So would you pull out your cup and open the top and pull out the bread. Let's remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us. Let's take it together in remembrance of the cross of Christ. Jesus said, We do this in remembrance of him. And he said, Now let's take the cup, this cup that is the cup of the new covenant. As often as you drink it, he says, You do this in remembrance of me. Remembering what? He has reversed the curse. All right, let's take it together and together to Jesus we say amen Amen. thank you right like we're with grateful hearts thanking thanking him for the difference that he has made in our life and that he has reversed the curse through bearing our diseases through carrying our illnesses on himself for us on the cross let's stand and finish our time together by reading these verse this verse together Let's go assurance of answered prayer. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John 16, 24. I love you, church family. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.